Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi everyone, this is Vitas Corrales from Northwestern University and welcome to another edition of SAEM Rams Ask a Chair podcast series. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Andy Nugent at the University of Iowa. As a proud Iowan, Dr. Nugent completed his medical school at the University of Iowa before going on to complete his emergency medicine residency at Texas Tech University in El Paso, Texas. Some of his many accomplishments that we'll be talking about today include the development of a residency training program at the University of Iowa, as well as establishing a clinical department of emergency medicine at Iowa, and the medical directorship of clinical operations that has grown from 20,000 patients per year to over 60,000 patients per year. He served on the Association of Academic Chairs of Emergency Medicine's Executive Committee since 2014, and he currently resides as Professor, Departmental Executive Officer, and Chair of Emergency Medicine at Iowa University. Hi, Dr. Nugent, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So, just to start off, the University of Iowa has started in both an EM residency and achieved department status while you've been at, on faculty. Tell us a little bit about your motivations to help see these projects through and tell us about what it took to kind of achieve these things. Yeah, so it's, it's actually uh, kind of an interesting story. So when I was in medical school, there was no emergency medicine program. There was an emergency department where various services would send their patients and the residents would go see them. There might be an attending that they hired to go see various patients off the street, but it wasn't a very busy place. And Nobody took it terribly seriously. So I went off to El Paso to do my residency, which is a great place, by the way. And then uh, while I was gone, they had a, a discussion amongst the faculty whether to even have an emergency department. So one of the options was to close it. The other option was to actually bring in someone that had done a residency program <laughs> and see if they could start uh, uh, an actual emergency department. One of my mentors, uh, Fred Hansen, was the guy that got tapped for that. And he uh, encouraged me to come up to Iowa. I, you know, I love the location. I love the city. But you know what? This is for me. I, I'm going to make this happen. To be honest, I didn't think I was going to be an academic. I thought I was just going to go up and work. And about three weeks after I got there, Fred decided that, uh, you know, he'd rather take an advisory role. And as the only residency trained board certified emergency physician in this, that part of the state, they basically said, you're it. I wasn't a very good negotiator. Uh, I will tell <laughs> you, like I, I didn't get a lot of money or anything else for it. And uh, my wife will tell you that I worked a lot of 18 hour days, but we went from a position where we were kind of an orphan uh, program, which no one really can define to, uh, you know, people that oversaw that would say, you know, you're not going to have a department. You're not going to have a residency. Just give up on it to see patients. But we managed to convince them with a, a lot of uh, push from the, the medical school because about 10% of the class was going into emergency medicine at that time, and they realized they were losing all this talent out of the state. So we were able to convince them that the department was in our best interest, the residency was in our best interest, and we had those things by 2003. And as you mentioned, the uh, the volume went from 20,000 to 60,000. This is almost directly corollary to the, the residency program onset, and it seemed to make a lot of changes. And we went from kind of a, a sleepy little academic ED that didn't do much to a really a high acuity medical center in a very short period of time. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the changes that you've seen? Obviously, things must look a lot different in the department now from when you started. How have these developments kind of changed the way that both care is delivered on like a regular basis, but also kind of what have been some of the ups and downs or 
unexpected positives and negatives of these changes? Yeah. So, you know, we were uh, basically a 13 bed, I wouldn't even call it uh, rooms because they all had curtains when I started <laughs> seeing 20,000 patients. And it's interesting because the trauma system started right about the same time. One of my favorite surgeons here started the trauma system because he knew it was a mess. And just to kind of give you an example of how things have changed, when I was a student, I came into a trauma. There was a neurosurgeon resident, an orthopedic resident, a surgery resident, and you know, four ER staff. No one was in charge. Everybody was shouting orders at different things. I'm surprised any patients lived. By the time I came back, they'd had the trauma system organized, and we uh, had you know, a lot of success teaming up with them and making that better. And that kind of boosted us up into the clinical area as well. But I would say the single most important change over the last 20 years uh, has been what we're capable of doing in the emergency department. So obviously, STEMI care has changed. But back then, it was, you know, they're in the waiting room. They might get an EKG within the hour. They call a cardiology fellow. They'd come down. <laughs> they'd look at them. I, I think, you know, our average time to a cath lab was about six hours when I started. We've joined the real world. It's it's under 45 minutes. So, But uh, those little things, you know, those, those care process pathways and things that have all changed dramatically in 20 years. And we're, we're seeing sicker and sicker patients. I think in the community at large, what I've noticed is that uh, patients used to know everything about their history. And I don't know if that was an Iowa thing or if it was a, a national thing. But when I first started, your diabetics knew who their diabetic doctor was. They knew every medicine they had. They knew when they started taking them, when they're not supposed to take them. Now they've got a bag of red pills <laughs> and say, I've got this. <laughs> We're going to stop you right there, Dr. Nugent, because I've never <laughs> seen that before. <laughs> you mentioned that from the start, you were seeing only 20,000 and that it grew to 60,000. Was that partly due to the growth of the city? Or do you think that this was also a phenomenon where if you build it, they will come? Not to paraphrase a famous Iowa movie, but... I was going to say, you just quoted an Iowa movie. I think a lot of it is you build it, they'll come because... Uh, there was nothing that set us apart from an emergency perspective in 2000 from the community. And once we got the expertise to have residents and, you know, the faculty started improving and the nursing started improving, there did become a noticeable difference in what we're able to handle and, and take care of. So I don't think the population has grown so much. It's just that the population has decided to come to Iowa City more. And uh, it's not hurt our, our competitors, and I don't want to say competitors, are, are referring hospitals much. They're plenty busy. I mean, we're just doing too good a job keeping people alive because now they're sicker. <laughs> Maybe we were more of a Darwinism kind of thing in the past. I don't know. But uh, I'm glad we are as good as we are now, and uh, it, it's good to be busy. Absolutely. It must be nice to kind of garnered the trust of your community and kind of seen that grow over, over the years. Obviously, you're in several different leadership roles all at once. Can you talk about sometimes, we always talk about the benefits and how nice it is to be a leader, but what are some of the difficulties um, that come uh, with being a leader? What are some of the difficult decisions that you've had to make in your career? Well, you know, people like to say that uh, they talk about money and those are the easy decisions because, you know, you either have money or you don't and you can either put together a good plan or you can't. <laughs> I think HR is by far the hardest part of, of what we do. You know, there's, it starts in the beginning, you know, are you interviewing and hiring the right people? Are you setting up, building a team that, that can work together? Are you bringing somebody in that's just so chaotic that they're going to just throw everybody else into a firestorm? You know, there's that part. And then there's the part where you have to deal with people that maybe aren't 
doing what they should be doing. Those are really difficult conversations. And, and I will recommend anybody going to leadership role, find yourself a good HR director and lean on them for those kind of things. <laughs> That's what they're trained to do. That's uh, don't, don't handle it all by yourself. And then the last part is actually difficult, but kind of fun. And that's trying to figure out how to reward all the people that are doing well. And, uh, you know, emergency medicine is a team sport. So sometimes it's not easy to kind of pick apart, like who's doing really well and incentivize those folks. You know, you got to think about those incentive programs carefully. You got to think about, uh, you know, how you promote people carefully. As everybody knows, in this day and age, one of the, the things we worry about is, are we providing the same opportunities to everyone? You know, is, are we being fair to everyone, of, of, you know, gender and ethnic diversity? And that weighs heavy as a leader because you want to be fair and you want to do the right thing and you're really in a fishbowl. So those kind of decisions are just way out there and you got to, you got to make sure you're doing right. Yeah. It sounds like uh, the money problems are kind of the easy part of the job, whereas yeah. the people problems are really the ones that weigh on you and keep you up at night. Yeah. huh? Okay. Well, Yeah. That's for sure. And I will tell you, if I had one thing to say to everybody, you know, the difficult decisions all look easy in retrospect if they can turn out okay. If they don't turn out okay, then they were really, really hard decisions. All right. After doing a couple of these podcasts, it seems like one of the popular themes that all of our chairs have been bringing up is that they've had really pivotal mentorship in their career growth. What are your thoughts on mentorship in emergency medicine and how did you develop these relationships in, in your career? And did you find that those were helpful in kind of your success and your growth? Yeah, I, I think mentorships are, are crucial. And uh, one thing we've always been kind of short on in emergency medicine, at least in the academic world, is, is mentorship. And I think it's improving. Uh, when I started, you know, I was like a lot of academics. I came straight out of residency. I had no formal training in teaching or research or anything else. I just landed in an academic center, kind of, I don't know, just by chance. And I'm glad that's changed a lot. People are more focused and they're more looking at their careers and deciding to go into academics and, and focusing on that. And uh, that's making a big difference in the outcomes. I think uh, your generation and people coming after us, I think are going to be much better in the academic world than, than mine was. But it, it is good to have people to lean on. And like I said, I, I've had a couple of real good ones. Fred Hansen, when I first came up here, still a good friend of mine. Uh, Eric Dixon, who's the president of UMass now, is my first chair here. Those are people that I know I can call on at any given time and uh, get some advice. And if nothing else, their shoulder cry on and they've been down the road. They've, they've heard they, they've been through those things before. They know how to, to, to deal with them. If, even if they don't have the right answer, they know how to get you in the right mindset to deal with them. So find somebody that, that's been down the road you're, you're walking and uh, they'll help you. And, you know, emergency medicine is a very collegial group, and there's very few people who refuse to, to mentor if they, they get an opportunity. That's really interesting. You know, a lot of people talk about mentorship as we're really useful in helping develop this career skill set or this research skill set. But I like that you also talk as mentorship being something where it's more of an interpersonal relationship and a lot, you know, it's part of the crux of mentorship is having somebody to lean on and to have that emotional support when you have those tough times as you're kind of developing into the leader. Oh, yeah. And someone who's kind of blazed that road before you and knows those kind of growing pains. So. I like that. Well, I think it's far more valuable from a mental standpoint to, to be that way. So, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Having held as many national leadership roles as you have, including being the past president of the Association of Academic Chairs in Emergency Medicine, 
You mentioned that this wasn't really your plan at the get-go, but obviously at some point you found yourself into these roles. How did you start down that path? And what are the benefits of having held these national roles that you found that you can bring back both to your own department and kind of what were some of those benefits? You know, I don't know if it's so much luck. I, you know, I, I tell people a lot of times that just I've just been lucky in life. But uh, a lot of times it's just recognizing the opportunity, right? So the easiest thing for me to do back in 1999 is say, no, I've got a young family. I don't want to do any of this stuff. I'm just going to work. But I took the, the impossible role and, and rolled with it. And, you know, when I, I got the interim chair job, it was in 2008 or so. It was, uh, it was no, no intention of becoming a chair of emergency medicine, but it just kind of worked out. You know, you learn to do the job. You enjoy the job. People see you can do a good job with it. And then uh, so then they offer you the job. So, you know, take those opportunities. That was an interesting uh, way to, to jump into things. You know, I was never, again, one of these things, never planned to be in part of the organization. I thought I was an interim chair. And then about the second or third year as a chair, I was like, yeah, this group looks like fun. And, you know, I talked to one of my mentors, say, you should go, you'll learn things. So uh, I went to the retreat with the other chairs and uh, was actually welcomed by quite a few of them. And I had a really good experience. I I was still interim the next year, so I went again. And uh, after that, shortly I became chair. And then the third year I went, they were looking for people to add to a couple of board members positions, which they never had before. They used to just had a president, vice president, treasurer. So then they had these extra board positions. I thought, okay, I can do that for a year. And I got elected, and then I found out it was a six-year deal and not a one-year deal. (laughs) So that part was actually pretty lucky. I got to tell you, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. I I met so many great people. I I learned way more from that organization than than I ever gave back. And uh, I I would gladly go through that experience again. uh, I recommend to anybody who's a young chair, you know, just, you know, you can do it. I mean, it's not that uh, taxing to, to be, you know, the president of that organization. It's, it's an honor. And you get to do a lot of uh, fun and interesting things with fun and interesting people. So. Were you able to uh, bring back anything from kind of those experiences back to your own department? Yeah, I think every time I go to a chairs retreat and mingle with uh, other chairs, we learn that we're facing a lot of the same issues and that everybody has a different way of approaching it. So, you know, learning how to deal with, uh, you know, boarding is something we're all facing, but everybody's got a little different bite of the apple mental health patients with, with COVID now, um, you know, just how to deal with the Dean and, and start a research program and a lot of academic things that I didn't have as much time to learn while I was learning my, uh, my clinical aspect of the stuff. And boy, I got a lot out of it and, uh, I, I, I'm just happy to be a part of the group. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> certainly sounds like there's benefits to these kinds of organizations where you can surround yourself with other great leaders and kind of learn from other people's experiences and hear about kind of how they've tried different things and their successes and their failures and be able to learn from them and then bring things back. Yeah. I would just add on that that you don't have to wait to become a chair to become part of some organization. So uh, find a group to network with at any level and you're going to learn a lot. And the more you spread yourself out, the more diverse uh, clinical practices you can get yourself associated with, the more you're going to learn. And, uh, you know, you can give back to other people in the same way. It's, it's very rewarding. Absolutely. So what can residents do and even early career faculty do to kind of position themselves for senior leadership and kind of the roles that you've had as their careers progress? Is there anything in specific that kind of stands out to you as 
you know, the first thing I would tell you is don't do what I did. <laughs> Plan for it. Okay? Now, don't let it drop on you. School of hard knocks, yeah, sounds like fun, but it's not great. <laughs> it's, you should think about this as you're, you know, graduating your residency. You know, uh, if you want to go into leadership, you really should do some sort of fellowship, uh, particularly in academics. And I would recommend you can do a good research fellowship, even though you're not going to be a researcher, just so you understand what's going on. Because you're going to have to cover all three legs of that stool, the finance, education, and, and research. Get yourself a good background on the clinical part, because the one thing that's going to keep a chair going is finances. And if you don't have a good hold of your clinical situation and you're trusting other people to do everything, things are going to, get, are going to slip and you got to stay on top of it. So I would say, even though it seems boring, make sure you know E&M coding inside and out. You know, go to some workshops on throughput, some other workshops on how to put a grant together and maybe some education skills. Make yourself as well-rounded as possible. And I think once you get into uh, an academic program, there's two types of people. There's those that take up everything that's thrown at them and get overwhelmed. (laughs) And then there's people that kind of are reticent to, to take any opportunity. And if you're one of the latter, you know, make yourself take the next thing that comes through. And if you're one of the former, you know, and you do too much, maybe you sit down with a chair and see how you can focus yourself a little better. <laughs> it's, uh, you really do got to be, got that plan in mind that you're going to be, say, in administration, that you do things that guide you toward administration. And it doesn't hurt to, to network both locally and nationally to, to, to improve that. Make sure your chair knows what you want. You know, a lot of people will hide this, right? You know, they, they don't want to upset the chair because, I want to be a chair and they're, they're going to be upset that they're going to, I'm going to take their jobs. Like, no, that's not how this works. I would be thrilled if any of my uh, faculty wanted to become chairs. You know, in a couple of years, they want to take my job. I'm going to give it to them. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think you can get a lot further if the chair knows what your ultimate goal is. And so that way you don't feel like you're sneaking around doing things and, and the chair doesn't want you to do. I know when I have people that want to get an administrative roles. I look for those roles for them. Um, I try to send them off to get more education. I, I try to, uh, you know, kind of send them the ads for, for various posts as they come up in other places. Not that I'm trying to get rid of them. I'm just trying to advance their career. This has all been fantastic advice, Dr. Nugent. Thank you so much. To recap, we first kind of talked about the development of both the residency at Iowa and then a department and kind of Hearing a cool story about that, not only the development of the residency in the department helped kind of care delivery within the department, but as the care delivery improved, we also saw an increase in your patient volumes as you kind of garnered the trust of the community and kind of how rewarding that can be. In terms of difficulties with leadership, we talked about how the money problems really aren't the the hard parts of the job. It's really the people problems and that those are the problems that keep you up at night and difficult, difficult conversations to have. Talked a little bit about the importance of mentorship brought up a common theme that we've heard in the past that mentorship is really everywhere. You just have to look for it. But you also mentioned that mentorship isn't just for career advancement or skill development, but also mentors can be people to lean on during tough times or emotional times to get more of that interpersonal support that sometimes I think we all ignore, but is obviously very necessary in our jobs. We also talked about national roles um, and committee roles and kind of looking for those opportunities and kind of the benefits of surrounding yourself with other like-minded leaders in in whatever field you're going into and how you can bring back their experiences to help 
you know, better the chances of success on your own endeavors. Uh, but we also talked about how you don't have to be a chair to do that and that there's different types of committees and organizations that you can be a part of starting as a medical student, even to a resident and early career faculty to kind of help develop your own skills and kind of learn more about your interests and your passions. And then lastly, we talked about some great tips about getting into leadership. My favorite being that let your chair know what you want to do. You know, they're there to help you, not to hurt you. And no one's afraid that they're going to take your job at this moment. But if they, if you let them know, then that puts them, on, that puts you on their radar and allows them to kind of think about your career and figure out what are going to be the next steps and keep an open eye for different opportunities for you. We also talked about fellowships can be helpful, especially if you have a certain niche interest, because it'll help you get a deeper understanding of what goes on behind the scenes and the operations of that kind of niche, as well as the importance of kind of understanding some of the finances of those operations. Workshops are always helpful and having a plan to, about how you're going to go about achieving your kind of leadership position is also important. And uh, never underestimate the importance of networking and kind of leaning on those colleagues and connections that you've made through the years. So thank you so much for all that golden advice. Do you have any other advice or wisdom for our listeners before we head out? Just be well-rounded and, uh, you know, don't torture any of your relationships uh, for short-term gain. <laughs> <laughs> I got to mention one more person that was a mentor to me because I forgot. Just a shout out to my former chair down in Texas Tech, Brian Nelson, who without him, I wouldn't have been where I'm at at all. So I want to say thank you to him. That's all possible. So. Awesome. Well, Dr. Nugent, thank you again so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and us being able to learn from your career and the, the growth of your department. We look forward to chatting with you next time. All right. Thank you much. 